Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with the arrest today of the leaker of classified documents that first appeared online eight months ago on Discord, a gaming site, where the postings of Jack Texiera, a 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, under the handle of Jack the Dripper, were shared by a small group of mostly teenagers calling themselves Thug Shaker Central, who referred to Texiera as OG. Joining us to discuss the inordinate and unnecessary amount of widely circulated classified material generated by the government is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. At the Washington Post, he conceived and co-authored the landmark Top Secret America investigation and co-wrote the national bestseller of the same name and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, his latest book is On That Day, the definitive timeline of 9-11, and his latest article at Newsweek is Moscow's Slow Bloody March to Defeat. Then, since the leaker clearly shared racist, white supremacist, and anti-Semitic views, we will look into dangers posed to the U.S. military by far-right racist and anti-government characters like Texiera and speak with Dr. Heidi Beirich, co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism an expert on the American and European far-right, including white supremacist, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, anti-government and other extremist movements. She has testified in Congress on issues related to extremism in the military and among veterans and on the dangers of accelerationist and neo-Nazi movements. The House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol sought her testimony on the threat posed by the extremist Proud Boys and on the rise of white supremacy in the United States. Then finally we'll look into how Senator Dianne Feinstein is holding up judicial nominations and has missed 60 votes in the Senate, indicating she is in no hurry to go back to work as she recuperates from shingles after announcing she will not run again in 2024. Joining us to discuss whether Feinstein is undermining the Democrats' slim majority in the Senate because of arrogance or dementia or a combination of both is Alexander Salmon, a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic and The American Prospect. His latest article at Slate is Democrats Can Be Democrats and Win, and we'll discuss calls for Feinstein to resign, which would mean Governor Newsom would get to pick another senator for California, having already promised to choose a woman of colour. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. 
as a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is William Markin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. At the Washington Post, he conceived and co-authored the landmark Top Secret America investigation and co-wrote the national bestseller of the same name and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. He's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and his latest article at Newsweek is Moscow's Slow Bloody March to Defeat. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. Thanks for having me on in. Well, thanks for joining us, Bellin. When the news broke today of identifying the young uh, leaker of these classified documents that has got the administration and the intelligence community in a tizzy. His name is Jack Texera. He's a 21-year-old with the Air National Guard in Massachusetts, the intelligence arm of the Air National Guard, where he's an IT tech serving at Otis Air Force Base on Cape Cod. His online handle is Jack the Dripper, which I guess is kind of amusing, is it not? Oh, I suppose. But here's the bottom line, Ian. We know that this is not an ideological leaker. And so therefore, who cares who he is? Isn't the real question, what are the nature of the documents that he leaked? Why are they top secret to begin with? And what is the actual damage that their leaking has caused? And then finally, What's the nature of U.S. counterintelligence? Why are there so many top secrets? Why do so many people have access to them? And what does it tell us about anything having to do with the national security of the United States? Well, when you say he has no ideology, I mean, he is, you know, has the same ideology as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Josh Hawley, the Christian nationalist, isolationist. He was the OG at 21 years old with a group of 20 to 30 people in this online chat group. They were mostly teenagers, some as young as 15, and they shared a love of guns and racist comments and memes. And there's a video apparently of him at a firing range with a big weapon, you know, spewing out white nationalist and anti-Semitic screeds before shooting up the target. So... Why do you say he had no ideology? Well, I say he had no ideological basis for leaking the documents. I mean, everyone has an ideology. And if we look at the whole counterintelligence model for the U.S., it's been uh, moving from people who, who are communists or are communist sympathizers to people who were spying for their mother country, uh, whether that be the Soviet Union or China today. Uh, to insider threats, 
which was sort of code for, uh, if you will, liberals or left-oriented leakers like uh, Edward Snowden and, and, and Chelsea Manning, to today, now that the news media is identifying domestic violent extremists as the threat. And it, and it feels to me like it's just the continuation of a cottage industry of counterintelligence uh, that will now try to wrap its head around, oh my God, why is it that we have people who love guns joining the US military, which seems like a pretty silly question to ask. Um, and, and are we able to eliminate uh, extremism in the U.S. military? Well, it's an interesting question, but what do we have the military for and and what kind of people are we trying to attract to the military, uh, if not aggressive young men? And so I walk away from this and say to myself, no, none of this is really important and none of it will have any legs uh, beyond this week's news story, that the only real story here is why are some of these documents top secret in the first place and what does it say about the whole national security system? You know, some pundits have already said, well, why does somebody who's a Ma Massachusetts Air National Guardsman have access to these top secrets in the first place? Well, the answer is that the the, the wing that, that the leaker is attached to uh, is responsible in a confederated system of intelligence analysis uh, for actually filling a slot of intelligence analysis 24-7, which is to say that there's so much information being collected by U.S. intelligence that they have to have these pockets of analysts all over the country and all over the world that essentially are fitting into a 24-7 confederated, if you will, uh, work-at-home telework uh, organization. So it's not like somehow this, these top secrets shouldn't have been in the hands of somebody who worked at the 102nd Intelligence Wing. It's more that so much is classified top secret that we, the public, becomes enamored of the damage that is done to the U.S. national security and loses sight of the fact that overclassification essentially makes this story an, a nothing which is essentially what President Biden said in Dublin this morning anyhow. He said that he didn't think that there were any any contemporaneous damage to US intelligence as a result of the leak. And 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 though the Defense Department and other spokesmen for the NSC etc have been saying, "Oh my god, exceptionally grave damage to the US national security," that's merely the definition of top secret. That's the that's what top secret means. That that the that the divulgence of that information or the unauthorized disclosure of that information would cause quote exceptionally grave damage to U.S. national security. But these top secrets, like most top secrets, their their revelation is not causing U.S. damage to U.S. national security and won't cause it. So let's focus on, first of all, what these documents actually tell us. And then second of all, how do we decide what kind of people we give access to top secrets? And how do we decide what kind of people are attracted to serve in the US military? Because my guess is that we're never gonna have 
uh, uh, liberals and progressives joining the U.S. military, and that may be something that for our society to ponder, but I'm not sure that I could say to you I'm alarmed by a gun-loving American patriot, and you can we can quibble about what the definition of all those words are, joining the American military. That's exactly what we have an American military for. Sure. Well, you know, you mentioned the long obsession with communism, and that was always the focus and the reflex, by the way, when, when this story first broke. When I talked to intelligence sources, they all assumed that there was a Russian spy within the uh, Pentagon, but uh, turned out to be <laughs> nothing of the sort. But in terms of this Jack Teixeira, the 21-year-old Air National Guardsman in the Air National Guard in Massachusetts, he was an IT tech. He may not have been cleared for the material that he was squirreling away and giving to these teenagers who saw, saw him as the sort of elder statesman, if you will. Um, well, first of all, you're wrong, Ian. He he might have had a job of IT, but IT today means running the networks and means uh, uh, netting everybody together. This was he was authorized to have access to top secret SCI information. I'm I'm guessing rather than the contrary that he wasn't. And second of all, he was also doing it as part of his job. Now the fact that he printed out documents or copied them and then folded them up and put them in his pocket and left the sensitive facility and took them home and then photographed them. Well, it shows flaws in the security system that I suppose I want the security people to uh, deal with. But really, in the end, the question still comes down to what is the damage to U.S. national security that is caused by the information being leaked. And certainly it is not exceptionally grave damage as the president himself said today. So then you have to ask yourself, well, why are these documents top secret in the first place? How did they become top secret? And then you just realize that this is an automated system that if the intelligence is derived at the lowest levels, from signals intelligence or or satellite reconnaissance, that the top secret stamp associated with the original information just gets carried along to a map, a map of, of Ukraine, for instance, that shows the disposition of Russian and Ukrainian forces, where there's no possible damage to U.S. national security with that information being compromised because the Russians know where their own forces are and the Ukrainians know where their own forces are. And the only people who don't know where their forces are are the American people. So Jack Smith, the special counsel, is investigating Trump's mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And the latest reports indicate that he may have had top secret maps that he was showing his guests to impress them of nuclear weapons, deployments, etc. What's your sense of how grave is that? In other words, why do we have reality winner in jail? And is it incumbent upon Jack Smith to investigate Trump? Because how can the Pentagon and the government and the national security community put people in jail if there's a double standard? Well, there is a double standard, Ian, and um, and the, associating Donald Trump with a 21-year-old knucklehead is exactly the right juxtaposition. 
They're both idiots. But, but looking at the damage caused by the information, I, I think that there are many different things going on here. You know, one is violating your oath. And so that's why most people go to jail. They because they steal something or they sign a non-disclosure agreement or they violate their oath because the courts have been very reluctant to um, make a judgment about damage to national security beyond what the what the government claims the damage to be. And so we do tend in the news media to run off half cocked about the question of of, of what was the degree of damage that was caused. And I'll give you an example. Um, Edward Snowden is now known to have leaked uh, 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 more than a million, uh, stolen more than a million documents. And of those, only you know some 50,000 or so have been published. And uh, those who are custodians of the documents have ceased uh, publishing any of the other documents. Well, the other documents, and I know this for a fact, Ian, are various other national defense secrets that have nothing to do with the NSA, have nothing to do with the surveillance state. They are just uh, documents that have been randomly uh, uh, downloaded from the from the top secret networks. And and so even within the context of an Edward Snowden or a Chelsea Manning or a, a reality winner. Uh, there is selection going on, on on the part of the leakers as to what they want to reveal. Now, what makes this case of, of, of the leaker in Massachusetts so interesting is that there was no purpose and no filter. He just, he just randomly chose documents to download and to show his uh, video gaming mates. And, and so to look at the question of the why is is probably just the wrong place to look. And also um, it's to understand that the nature of secrets are not all the same, that while it might have been just or right for Edward Snowden to reveal bulk collection on the part of the NSA, there were other things that he stole that were never revealed because guess what? They were things that he is an individual and his various compatriots have decided as individuals uh, that their that their divulgence was not going to enhance the public's understanding of anything. So, yeah, but but Bill, but just a second, are you absolutely sure that Snowden has not revealed the full contents of what he has on the cloud to the Russians? No, I'm not confident about it at all, and nor is the U.S. government. But what is clear is that publication like The Intercept, which were the custodians of those Snowden documents, certainly haven't revealed anything uh, close to the full contents sure. of what they have. And, now, and, let's and Bart, Bart Gelman, by the way, has the entire cache. I mean, in other words, you're saying that there's been mediation. If you leak to The New York Times, there's, there's some mediation there, the lawyers and and they probably contact the CIA, but there's no mediation here. It just goes straight from the 21-year-old to the 16-year-olds, and it's out there. And members of the chat group were from Russia and Ukraine, so you know anybody could have got them, right? Yes, anyone could have. But then let's let's drill down just a little bit further. So um, one of the documents that was leaked dealing with Ukraine 
shows a, a difference of opinion between the Russian military and the Russian intelligence service regarding uh, how many uh, Russians and Ukrainians have died in the war. And, and it appears from the limited information we have in a single document uh, that the Russian intelligence service uh, believes that uh, the Russian military is covering up how many people have died and been injured. Now, that is an interesting insight. But in the world of official leaks, in the world of political and, and, and military decision makers revealing top secret information all the time, which is to say, saying we know that there is a disagreement between the FSB and the Russian Ministry of Defense as to how many Russians have died and that the Russian Ministry of Defense is covering that up. I walk away saying to myself, well, why wasn't that officially leaked? Because that's such an interesting observation that it's important for not only the American public and the European publics to know that the Russian military is definitively understating the damage that has been caused as a result of the war, but it's also an important part of the propaganda of the United States directed towards Russia, which would say, hey, Russian people, you don't know the true facts of how many Russian soldiers have died and, and been injured. And so I look at a quote secret like that, and I say to myself, well, why didn't they leak it? It's really interesting. It would it would undermine Putin and Moscow, and it would inform the American and European publics as to the stat true status of the war. And and the answer is there's no rhyme or reason because most leaks which come out of Washington have political purpose. They have political purpose. They're not for the point of informing the public. And so I walk away and say to myself, as I've felt for decades, that secrets are mostly secret because they are benefiting those who keep the secrets and they are keeping the rest of us in the dark. So the fact that this knucklehead in, in Massachusetts uh, uh, wantonly photographed documents that he had access to merely to show off to his uh, fellow video gamers, to me is a curiosity but really the big story here is, well, why are any of these things secret? Like, doesn't the public benefit, doesn't US national security benefit from our knowing these things rather than the opposite, which is, oh my God, they're stamped top secret. So therefore their revelation would cause exceptionally grave damage to the United States. I would like to just change the paradigm, which is the paradigm that it is presumed to be of public interest unless a decision is made that it isn't. And what we have now is a system which is just the opposite, which is it is presumed to be of no public interest merely because it's stamped top secret. And that serves no one. And that's what I learned from this guy's leaks. Just in closing, Bill, you mentioned counterintelligence. And at 3 p.m. Eastern today, the FBI arrested Jack Texera and searched his home. But I'm astounded by the fact that yesterday the New York Times reporter was literally at the home of this character, Jack Texier, the 21-year-old's mother, 
when he showed up in a pickup truck and there was another man there and the reporter said, I'd like to talk to him. And the the man said, no, no, he's going to need a lawyer. So in other words, the New York Times had found this leaker before the FBI had. Well, we don't know that that's the case. I mean, the New York Times certainly named the leaker before uh, before the U.S. government did, but we don't know what the FBI has already done or knows. But your observation is still is still precise. I think that it gives us a lot of insight into the nature of our interconnected world and and the social media that we all uh, live under, including your radio show and everything that I write, which is that the pressures to do things immediate are are really stunning. And so. Again, as we look at the damage here and as we look at the leaker and the nature of the leaker, I don't want to make big, giant assumptions about domestic violent extremists in the American military or big assumptions about the Russians or big assumptions about anything uh, that has to do with uh, the industry of secrecy. I, I want to bring it really down to some basic points. So, my hat's off to the New York Times for doing a good job of journalism, but I, at the same time, criticize everyone in the news media who is reporting on this story as, a, as it is another celebrity uh, uh, event rather than asking the tough question, which is why do we have so many secrets and why do we have so many people with access to those secrets? Well, I've been guilty of that to some extent up until now, Bill. That's why I talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, Ian. But, I mean, this is a really tough question to get to the bottom of. And, I agree. I agree. And I would say that, you know, one of the points that I've made to friends of mine who are inside the system, and I have many, is, you know, you guys just get you get high on the vapors of, te of top secret. You're, you're watching threat reports and reading these top secrets so much every day that you walk away with a, a sense of anxiety about the threat that is only commensurate with the volume of the, of the documents that you read and not necessarily commensurate with actual threat. And so I, I think that the news media can often be... Uh, guilty of the same thing, which is to be so impressed with something that's stamped top secret that it, it it kind of makes puts them in an anxious state of, oh, my God, when the reality might be, as President Biden himself said today, eh, top secret schmeekrets, who cares? This is not really that secret in the first place. And no, and it doesn't appear that it has done any damage to the U.S. And it's not contemporaneous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bill, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ian, for having me on again. And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, who's a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. At the Washington Post, he conceived and co-authored the landmark Top Secret America Investigation and co-wrote the national bestseller of the same name and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. 
He's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and his latest article at Newsweek is Moscow's Slow Bloody March to Defeat. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the threat posed to the U.S. military by white supremacists, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, anti-government and other extremist views within the ranks. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Heidi Byrick, who's the co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, an expert on the American and European far right, including white supremacist, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, anti-government, and other extremist movements. And she's testified in Congress on issues related to extremism in the military and among veterans on the dangers of accelerationists and neo-Nazi movements. The House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol sought her testimony on the threat posed by the extremist Proud Boys and on the rise of white supremacy in the U.S. Welcome to Background Briefing, Heidi Byrick. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Heidi, and your uh, group, the Global Project Against Hate and Extremists of issued uh, a statement, the leak of classified documents is latest reminder, we must root extremists out of the military. So let's talk about this 21-year-old extremist that was just arrested today by the FBI, Jack Texiera, 21-year-old. He was on this gaming site, Discord, in a group called the Thug Shaker Central. He was referred to as the OG because he was, <laughs> I guess he wasn't a lot older than these teenagers that he shared all of this classified information with. So his profile is pretty scary, isn't it? I mean, just describe what you know about him as a white extremist. Yeah, his, his, what's been revealed, you know, by the press in the last couple of days is, is a bit disturbing. Uh, the fact that he had a video apparently on YouTube where he's shooting guns and making racist and anti-Semitic remarks, the name of his uh, invitation-only um, group there on the website Discord, this gaming site, Thug Shaker Central is a problem. Uh, the fact that this uh, chat room was described as coming together, people coming together over a shared love of guns, racist online memes, and video games is also disturbing. Maybe worse is the fact that the people who were involved in it 20 or 30 young men included even teenagers and and that is that is rather disturbing let me just say this is exactly why we cannot have people like this in the military they are insider threats and in this case jack texera looks like he's a real national security threat so how do you stop the the recruitment of these kind of far-right people when most people who join the military aren't liberals and progressives. They tend to be more conservative. And what kind of mechanism is there to sort out 
the extremists from patriotic Americans who just, you know, happen to want to go out and kill people for the U.S. government. Well, the military has made actually some strides Uh, in the last two years. This is something that I testified um, and advocated for in February 2020 when I testified with a in front of a congressional um, subcommittee about this issue. They have put in place, for example, a tattoo database. That's one of the most overt signs that you can find, right, that someone's involved in an extremist movement. Do they have tattoos that, that indicate that? Because that happens a lot. Um, but, but there also needs to be work done on social media. You know, I have many, many times over the last 10, 15 years sent people paste, people saying I'm in the military and they're on Facebook or other sites and posting racist material. So that kind of stuff needs to be looked at. There also has to be some sort of sense that if people are making racist comments, you know, you find it hard to believe that if this guy's willing to tape himself in a YouTube video talking um, disparagingly about uh, Jews and others, that there was probably somebody around him who knew what he thought. And there needs to be better internal reporting measures in the military to deal with this. And unfortunately, after the last National Defense Authorization Act was passed just a few months ago, the amount of money going to rooting out extremists was objected to actually by Republicans. And as a result, the military isn't going to have to put out mandatory reports on the number of these people. In other words, this issue, which it seems like everybody would be on board for tackling, actually has become politicized. And that is causing problems in terms of deepening the military's engagement to root out extremists. Well, what is the difference, though, between this white nationalist, Christian nationalist, racist, Jack Texera's belief, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, Josh Hawley? He has all of these sort of isolationist, you know, beliefs in the that the deep state is behind everything that's bad in the world, that kind of stuff. That's certainly Marjorie Taylor Greene's outlook, and many in the House, and as I mentioned, Josh Hawley in the in the Senate. Well, I mean, you're pointing out to a serious problem we have in this country, which is ideas, white supremacist ideas, conspiracy, extremist conspiracy ideas like QAnon have infiltrated the mainstream and are actually represented by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, she definitely should not qualify to go into the military with her beliefs. I personally would not would prefer that she wasn't in Congress. But we have on the right wing now a problem where there's no sort of barrier between the fringe and the mainstream. There were dozens of people who ran on the GOP ticket in the midterms who pushed the white supremacist great replacement conspiracy theory, this idea that there's a plot by Jews or globalists to replace white Americans with brown-skinned immigrants. That's just flat-out white supremacy. It's right. Tucker, Tucker Carlson has propagated that on Fox News. Exactly. Tucker Carlson. That's right. And it's directly connected to terrorism. The attack at a Pittsburgh synagogue, the El Paso Walmart attack, the, just a few months ago, the attack in um, a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. How is it possible that something that inspires domestic terrorism can be a party, you know, a platform to run on? I mean, this is a serious problem we have in this country. This fringe stuff is no longer fringe, and it needs to be made fringe again. So in applying for jobs, my understanding is that in corporate America, HR 
look into people's social media activities, their Facebooks and stuff like that, to find out, you know, what they share and what their belief systems are. So you're suggesting then that the Pentagon should do the same. They should have found this YouTube video of Jack Texera, you know, with his big rifle at a shooting range with his eye protection and ear protection spouting off this anti-Semitic white nationalist diatribe before shooting at a target. That's available on YouTube, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that the Pentagon can find every single thing, right? Some of these young folks are very clever at, um, you know, masking who they are online, using fake names. I mean, there are, you know, you can stay anonymous to some extent. Even so, you are correct. Corporate America would do a deep dive into your online background before they would hire you. It would just be part and parcel of the process of gaining employment somewhere. And the, the Pentagon was not doing that at all just a couple years ago. Now, my understanding is that they're starting to look at social media. There have been some reports about this, but they need to be real serious about this. Nowadays, you know, a lot of young people are leaving a lot of litter online, and that's where you can find out the kinds of things that, that they believe. You know, the other thing about it is you got to watch the watch people once they've joined the service. Make it clear that these kinds of beliefs are unacceptable here, that they are a fireable offense, that they're a threat to national security. You got to train people who are in management roles throughout the military on the signs of white supremacy. All this has to be done. And, you know, people who make light of this problem, which tends to happen on the right side of the aisle, saying, oh, there's only a few extremists or even worse, by bringing this up, you're somehow defaming the military, should think long and hard about how many veterans and extremists like this have been behind domestic terrorist attacks. You know, Timothy McVeigh was a veteran, and he perpetrated in 1995 in Oklahoma City the largest domestic terrorist attack on American soil. That's what we're talking about. There were veterans in active duty military on January 6th storming the Capitol. So these are threats to democracy and threats to fellow citizens' lives. It has to be dealt with. And you're saying that there were efforts to deal with it, but they were scuttled by who in the Republican Party scuttled these efforts? Um, I can't remember the exact people, but it had to do with the armed services committees and basically a rejection of the idea that white supremacy or other forms of extremism like anti-government beliefs are really a problem. They just want to act as though this isn't an issue. And it's sort of in line with the fact that many on the right, people like Jim Jordan and others, are trying to make January 6th into having not been that big of a deal. These are all part and parcel of a downplaying of the threat of far-right extremism to our democracy, to our institutions, and and to the health and safety of our fellow citizens. Right. And the leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, gave Tucker Carlson of Fox News all of the tapes from January the 6th recorded inside the Capitol so that he could create a complete piece of propaganda and fiction indicating that it was the Capitol Police that were beating up the insurgents rather than the insurgents storming the Capitol and beating up the Capitol Police. And many of these members of Congress have said that it was just a, a happy excursion and Nothing happened, and if anything did happen, it happened by Antifa. So, you know, what's your understanding of how prevalent that view is within the ranks of the Republicans that they're trying to rewrite history? And, of course, you know, we know that uh, Donald Trump's going to pardon everybody if he gets reelected. 
and he also, of course, is saying that nothing happened. They're, they're beautiful people. You know, I love you, I love you, etc. Well, it's very 1984 of them, isn't it? I mean, Trump at his Waco rally last month played that song, I can't remember the name of it, that's sung by the choir of people who were in prison for January 6th. I mean, they are literally trying to rewrite history and make it seem that uh, that what happened on January 6th was just a trifle and a nothing. In fact, that Trump is trying to make the people who have been in prison for their activities that day into, into heroes, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene is running around saying that they're being oppressed as political prisoners. It's a disaster. This was an attempt to overturn a free and fair election. And the right has decided to make it seem like a nothing burger. And this goes to the fact that they don't want to accept, or or maybe they just don't believe, that these extremist ideas are a problem, right? They just don't uh, see it that way, or they're not willing to criticize people in their own party. It's It's a disaster for democracy. It's a disaster, frankly, for the GOP, which itself it seems much more like an extremist party than a real political party these days. And, you know, for all of us, we are suffering from an inability to deal with issues related to protecting our democracy because of these forces on the far right. But, you know, you've worked in this field for a long time, Heidi, uh, with the Southern Poverty Law Center and now as a co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Do you feel that there are enough people in the top ranks of the Pentagon who recognize that this is a problem within their own ranks? I mean, the idea that this guy is leaking all this material uh, on a gaming site and some of the members of this Thug Shaker Central were in Russia. So, (laughs) my God, you'd think at least in terms of their concern about keeping secrets that this would be a wake-up call. Well, I do think that, you know, Lloyd Austin, the head of the Pentagon, or Secretary of Defense, is serious about this issue. He has spoken many times um, about the threat that this poses to both morale, to fellow service members. Remember, you know, there's a lot of people of color in the military. And, you know, but the question becomes, how far does that support go down the chain? And, you know, that I'm not so sure about. Some of his efforts, you know, he held a a stand down early in his tenure after Biden came in uh, that some in the military have criticized as being, you know, sort of ridiculous, mamby-pamby efforts or, or, you know, talking about diversity is not what the military needs because it doesn't have this kind of a problem, sort of making light of this. I hope this incident is a reminder to all those people who try to make light of extremism in the military and the effects that it can have, that this is serious. This is an insider threat. This is a terrible disaster for national security. And you need to root these people out or you're going to have problems like this. You know, there have been members of white supremacist groups that had security clearances. God only knows what it does, what they do with the information they have access to. This guy got caught, right? This got figured out. But have there been other situations that we don't know about? Probably. Well, Dr. Heidi Barrick, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 
And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Heidi Byrick, who's a co-founder and chief strategy officer of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism, an expert on the American and European far right, including white supremacist, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, anti-government and other extremist movements. She has testified in Congress on issues related to extremism in the military and among veterans and on the dangers of accelerationists and neo-Nazi movements. The House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol sought her testimony on the threat posed by the extremist Proud Boys and on the rise of white supremacy in the United States. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into whether Senator Dianne Feinstein is undermining the Democrats' slim majority in the Senate because of arrogance or dementia or a combination of both. Kids with guns, kids with guns, take over, I won't be long. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Salmon, a politics writer at Slate, who has previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. His latest article at Slate is Democrats Can Be Democrats and Win. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Salmon. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And we spoke a little while back about uh, Dianne Feinstein stepping down. And since uh, she said that she was not going to run again, she's obviously still in the Senate. She's missed 60 votes. She's the oldest member of the Senate at 89. Congressman Ro Khanna has asked her to resign. Of course, he supports Barbara Lee as her replacement. And now, apparently, she suggested in a conversation with Chuck Schumer, that they could find another Democratic senator temporarily replace her on the Judiciary Committee so that this backlog of judicial nominations uh, will no longer be stalled. But that's not easy to do. You've got to get 60 votes. You've got to get at least 10 Republicans to agree to that. And I can't see that happening. So what's the resolution here, Alex? Yeah, it's a total it's it's a total nightmare. I mean, it's it's a Every 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 solution you see out of this problem is is bad for some reason, as you mentioned, right? The idea that replacing her on the Judiciary Committee might be the easiest workaround. I think they can do it on a temporary basis in a non-filibusterable way. If they wanted to do it permanently, it would it would be subject to the filibuster. That would take sixty votes. There's no way Republicans are going to they're they're just simply not going to do that. They're not going to help Democrats get their judicial nominees confirmed. So obviously they're not going to let them have that on a permanent basis. We might see her removed temporarily or replaced temporarily. That doesn't answer the question of whether or not if she can't do her job on the Judiciary Committee, how can she do her job on all the other committees that she's on or you know all the other Senate business that she's supposed to be attending to? That certainly doesn't answer that question. And I think that you know even if this is resolved with the Judiciary stuff, there's a whole host of other issues that remain totally unresolved and I think increasingly important. Well, it makes you ask, though, Alex, is that, you know, the Democrats fought hard to get a majority and they had a squeaker down in Atlanta and spent a ton of money. They finally get hold on to their majority or increase it slightly with Fetterman. And then Fetterman gets sick and then Feinstein gets shingles 
and she's apparently recovered, or at least, but she's still resting, and hasn't come back to the to the Senate. So, what's the point of having majority if you can't use it? Right, absolutely, and 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 I think that's why this cycle has been so interesting. Is that it feels like there are Democrats, Democratic voters, you know, people generally uh, uh, who are activists, or even you know, just just even regular sort of uh, blue voters are taking this much more seriously than I think even the Feinstein operation and and a number of senior Democrats are taking things, and, and I think that's that's really telling. For her, you know, and for, you know, some of her allies, Nancy Pelosi and others, they're sort of like, well, what's the rush? Give her time to, you know, to recover. And, you know, like she deserves this this treatment. She's been around for so long. Give her a wide berth. Give her time. For anyone who's lived through the uh, the recent Ruth Bader Ginsburg saga, uh, especially for Democratic voters, that sort of idea does not sit well because we've all seen exactly what happens when you just let someone bide their time and, and uh you know, don't take the the issue too seriously and don't feel the urgency of these judicial nominations in particular. And and that idea that, you know, there's no rush, there's no urgency just doesn't sit well with Democrats, I think, for, for very good reason. Um, and so the sort of lack of urgency you're he- hearing from the, the Feinstein camp about, you know, well, she's recovering. I mean, the statement that, that her group gave was that, you know, she's recovering. They won't put a date on when she'll be back uh, to work. She's, quote unquote, working from home. But Politico reported that she they're not expecting her to come back to Washington for two years. They don't know if she's going to make it back at any point for the rest of her term. And that's to say nothing of her of her dementia. I mean, we've talked about her her health decline in other senses. But the shingles is one thing. Dementia is the other. You know, this is a very long list of maladies. And, and clearly she is not able to do the job at a very basic level. But so what's going on then? I mean, is this she's just being stubborn, selfish? I mean, you, when you referred to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you, Alex, you're referring to the fact that the Christine Blasey Ford, who testified against Kavanaugh in the confirmation hearings, Feinstein sat on her evidence and didn't move on it for months. And had, they, had she moved on it right away, then the, the press would have been able to do more investigation of Kavanaugh's background, and he probably would not have been confirmed. So that was pretty bad. But at this moment, if she's just not, she's not going to run again, but she's not going to do anything and keep that Senate seat blocked for another two years and not allow a replacement and not show up to vote. I mean, that's outrageous. What's going on? Is that dementia or arrogance? <laughs> I think it's uh, well, one thing I would say first is that the comparison to Ruth Bader Ginsburg is actually twofold because I think. The, the comparison to how Ginsburg behaved at the end of her own career, I think, is... Oh, is I see. I'm sorry. I confused Ginsburg with Kavanaugh. And that Ginsburg, of course, was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. Right, right. But the, just the, the simple fact that, you know, we knew for years and years that she was in declining health, that, you know, her her position was was probably not long uh, and to be safe. And, and she refused to step down when Democrats had the ability to replace her. And then, of course, the outcome is calamitous. And it locks in Republican control of the Supreme Court for a generation. So I think that's fresh in the mind, too, with 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 the refusal to. I mean, it's it's right. It's incredibly maddening when you just say it aloud, like California is the biggest state in the country. Uh, and one of its two Senate, the, the way the Senate is structured, it's, it's, you know, the most aggressively underrepresented state in in the Senate because of that. And the the structure, you know, they right now, California has one senator who has one capable senator representing 
the entirety of the state, uh, which is ridiculous. And yeah, the refusal to step down. And I think a lot of it comes down to just uh, this this very old fashioned embrace of seniority, where if someone is old, if someone has accrued a certain level of seniority, whatever they want goes. I think that's they are expecting a certain reverence for her because of that. And that's just not the nature of how politics is these days. And it's and it just doesn't speak to the urgency of the moment politically. And and right. The the fight to get a Democratic majority in the Senate to confirm judicial nominees. And then all of a sudden, you know, we could have seen this, you know, we've talked about this before, right? Like the, the when she ran in 18, everyone knew that she was in, in steep decline and it was unreasonable for her to run. Now we're saying, oh, let's just let her take two more years to, you know, like uh, ride off into the sunset without uh, too much pressure. And it's, and it's like that just doesn't meet the moment. That doesn't make any sense. And it's a huge disservice to the people of California. So is there anybody that can talk sense to her? and? get her to resign. I mean, the governor would replace her, and Gavin Newsom has already said he would replace her with a black woman, and who's, who could that be apart from Barbara Lee, which would then give Barbara Lee an advantage in the race to replace Feinstein, since she'd already get the, have the seat given to her, and that wouldn't uh, sit well with the others, Katie Porter and uh, Adam Schiff. They'd all be stiffed. So... It's not an easy decision for even if even if you get to the point of getting her to acknowledge that she should resign and step down. What do you make of what Governor Newsom's already promised? Right. It's I mean it's a total. This is what I mean about being a headache in all directions. It's like it's a it's a it's a big challenge because right Newsom has already said he would appoint a black woman to that position uh, if and when Feinstein steps down. He I think you know there's every reason to believe that he would indeed do that. The problem is that the other senator from California, Alex Padilla, was also appointed by Newsom. And as you point out, if you get when you get appointed to those to those positions, you basically win the reelection forever. There, there basically is no election at that point. So Padilla got in there and immediately uh, when he was up for reelection, he coasted. There was no contest. And the idea that you're going to have both of these Senate seats in California represented by people who did not win them in open elections, did not really win them in a democratic manner at all, is I think actually not acceptable for uh, for the party or, or just for the state of democracy in the state. And so that puts pressure on Newsom then to find someone to appoint who would pledge not to run for re-election, which is probably what it's going to come down to if they do manage to, her, to get her to step aside. And then, right, then who who's willing to, to serve out 18 months of a term and then you know, not go forward. That That is another difficult question because that's a terrible job. But I think that they, you know, they really do feel like they need to have an actual open election for this seat. So it puts Newsom in a pinch. It puts whoever would replace Di- Diane Feinstein in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a real pickle as well. Everyone who's running for the race is now it, it caught up in this. There's just really no good way to do it. But that, I think, ultimately is probably the best and most likely outcome is she's out Newsom replaces someone who who pledges only to serve the remaining months of the term and not run for re-election, and then they have an open election in 24, and one of those contestants, one of those candidates you mentioned, eventually will win the seat outright. Well, apparently Adam Schiff did contact with Feinstein before he announced he was running for her seat to replace her. So whether he could talk to her, Nancy Pelosi is close to her, who could talk to her to get her to do the right thing, to just resign now, because if she's going to not show up for the next year and a half, 
and it's not likely that they'll be able to get the 10 Republican votes to replace her on committees. They'd still be a senator short at any rate. That's the part that I don't understand. Is there anybody that can reach her? And I don't know whether this is just somebody that is completely arrogant or is suffering from dementia or a combination of both. Yeah, I think it's a combination of all those things. I mean, this is a party that has gotten in trouble a lot by putting seniority ahead of the priorities of the policy and political priorities of the party. And this, I mean, this is a pattern we've seen quite a bit. And, and this excessive deference to seniority as if this the Democratic Party was a social club more so than a political organization is behind some of the very, very worst decision making that you'll see in the party and has been for years. So that is really what you're seeing on display here. And the idea, right, you would think that someone like Nancy Pelosi, also an octogenarian, also has taken steps to facilitate her exit from Congress in a more graceful manner. She, you know, she stepped aside in this cycle. You think she might be able to talk some sense in, into Feinstein, but but even today she came out and said that this campaign to get Feinstein to resign is is sexist and ableist, and she doesn't make she can't understand it, and so that kind of shows you where we're at on this stuff. It's it's right, uh, and she trashed uh, Ro Khanna, right? Absolutely uh, right. Very you know trashed Ro Khanna for his comments on the matter, and and yeah, who else can get to her? You know, I. I I'm not sure. At a certain point, obviously, it becomes it becomes too much. But obviously, that that part that point is very very distant because you would have said at a certain point you would have imagined at a certain point in the past we've been talking about stuff like this for upwards of four years and that point still hasn't been reached. And and so you know I I hope I imagine there will be something. I mean the fact to me that just sort of reading between the lines here, the fact that Chuck Schumer hasn't already or hadn't already moved to replace her from the judiciary tells me actually that maybe he wants this to play out more publicly to put more pressure on her to step down because they could have very easily taken the heat off of her and, and you know, set this process in motion earlier. But we definitely haven't heard the last of it. It's, it's no, no one's going to go quietly on, on, on this one, it seems. Well, Alex, just in the last minute, let's talk about your article at Slate. Uh, Democrats can be Democrats and win. Just give us a brief summary just here in the last minute. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so it's in, in reference to the, uh, the the fight in the Tennessee State House, which has obviously gotten a lot of national attention lately with these three, the Tennessee three, these three lawmakers who participated in uh, a protest for gun control. Two of them, the, the, the two young black uh, legislators, were both kicked out of the legislature for doing that. And the first time that's happened since the Civil War in a non-criminal related <laughs> uh, situation. And both of them actually in the, in the, in the matter in the matter of a, of a week have, have made their way back to the legislature. And, you know, it, it's it's managed to be the, you know, the best seven day period for the Tennessee Democratic Party in years and years and years. And the reason for that is that they, they really defied conventional wisdom on how Democrats are supposed to behave, especially in conservative states, which is that they're supposed to be triangulate as much as possible. They're supposed to basically act like Republicans and especially on gun control. They're supposed to never say anything that would out them as Democrats, out them as, you know, sort of indifferential for, for, uh, from Republicans on gun control. And these these two young legislators have proven that actually that's not true at all, that if you fight aggressively for Democratic policies and for priorities like that, the rewards can be huge and you can win policy and political gains, even in places like Tennessee where Democrats have struggled so, so immensely. Um, so that's kind of the thrust of it. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Alex. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. 
And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Salmon, who's a politics writer at Slate, who was previously written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. And his latest article at Slate is Democrats Can Be Democrats and Win. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America Oh,